you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Very early Sunday morning, the women came to the tomb where Jesus' body was laid. They brought the sweet-smelling spices they had prepared. They saw that the heavy stone that covered the entrance had been rolled away. They went in, but they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They did not understand this. While they were wondering about it, two men in shining clothes stood beside them. The women were very afraid. They bowed down with their faces to the ground. Men said to them, why are you looking for a living person here? This is a place for dead people. Jesus is not here. He has risen from death. Do you remember what he said in Galilee? He said the Son of Man must be handed over to the control of sinful men, be killed on a cross, and rise from death on the third day. Then the women remembered what Jesus had said. The women left the tomb and went to the eleven apostles and the other followers. They told them everything that happened at the tomb. These women were Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary the mother of James, and some others. They told the apostles everything that had happened. The apostles did not believe what they said. It sounded like nonsense. But Peter got up and ran to the tomb to see. He looked in, but he saw only the cloth that Jesus' body had been wrapped in. It was just lying there. Peter went away to be alone, wondering what had happened. While the two men were saying these things to the followers, Jesus himself came and stood among them. He said, Peace be with you. This surprised the followers. They were afraid. They thought they were seeing a ghost. But Jesus said, Why are you troubled? Why do you doubt what you can see? Look at my hands and my feet. It's really me. Touch me. You can see that I have a living body. A ghost does not have a body like this. After Jesus told them this, he showed them his hands and his feet. The followers were amazed and very, very happy to see that Jesus was alive. They still could not believe what they saw. He said to them, do you have any food here? They gave him a piece of cooked fish. While the followers watched, he took the fish and he ate it. Jesus said to them, remember when I was with you before? I said that everything written about me must happen. Everything written in the Law of Moses, the books of the Prophets, and the Psalms? Then Jesus helped the followers understand these scriptures about him. Jesus said to them, It is written that the Messiah would be killed and rise from death on the third day. You saw these things happen. You are witnesses. You must go and tell people that they must change and turn to God, which will bring them his forgiveness. You must start from Jerusalem and tell this message in my name to the people of all nations. Remember that I will send you the one my father promised. Stay in the city until you are given that power from heaven. Amen, amen. Why don't you go and grab a seat, city on a hill. Happy Easter. And once more, can we thank the Lord for the band and 
all the volunteers who have served so generously this Easter weekend. It is so good to be here with you. On Good Friday, we remembered the good news that Jesus died on a cross for our sin. And we remembered His sacrificial death. Today, we celebrate the good news that the tomb is empty and Jesus is alive. Amen? Amen, amen. A special welcome uh, to friends and family who are joining us. A special greeting to those who are here with us online. It's so wonderful, wherever you are, uh, that we can gather together this Easter Sunday. Um, This week... I stumbled across this remarkable true story of a guy called Bill Morgan. Uh, Bill was a a 37-year-old truck driver who was living in a caravan. And he has a terrible car crash, but he manages to survive. Uh, But when he goes to hospital, uh, the doctors give him a medicine that, that caused a cardiac arrest. And his heart stops for a staggering 14 minutes and 38 seconds. He's declared clinically dead, and he falls into a long coma that lasted 12 days. The medical staff at that moment said there is no hope of survival. In fact, they tell his family to pull the plug, not once, but twice. But being the great Aussie battler that Bill is... He doesn't give in. His family doesn't give up. And despite all that had happened, despite being clinically dead, Bill arises <laughs> healthy and, and, and good and, and alive. And the medical world call it this modern day miracle. Now, suppose you had cheated death. What would you do on your first day? Maybe enjoy a few celebratory drinks with friends. Maybe take a week off and just reflect on all that has happened. Not Bill. In true Aussie fashion, he heads to the local news agency and buys himself a scratchy ticket. You remember scratchy lotto tickets? I remember as a kid, you know, hunting around news agencies for leftover ones in the bin, hoping that someone hadn't missed that they'd won. I never won, but I was hopeful. Well, Bill gets his scratchy from his home local news agency, and what does he discover? He discovers that he won. He won a Toyota Corolla. Incredible. But the story doesn't stop there. Channel 9 News hear about this man who cheated death and won a Toyota Corolla and says, we've got to do a story with you, Bill. Bill, can we meet you at the local news agency where you got that ticket? We'll do a little reenactment. We'll talk with you. It's going to go on the evening news. He says, sure, I can help out with that. He goes to the local news agency. And would you believe it? With the cameras rolling live as he's reenacting this scratchy moment, he buys another scratchy. He starts scratching it and looks up in shock. And I kid you not, he says, I've just won $250,000. I'm not joking. I've won $250,000. This is in the late 90s, by the way, and with inflation and economy, like that's like what? 28 gazillion dollars today? I've just won $250,000. The cashier person, whatever they are, rushes over to him to confirm the good news. He looks in disbelief at the camera and says, 
I think I'm going to have another heart attack. <laughs> Calls his fiancée, shares the good news. Incredible. Incredible story. So amazing, it's, it's beyond belief. I mean, imagine your Bill going to the local pub in the next few days, sharing that with your mates. What do you mean you, you died and came back to life? What do you mean you want a Toyota Corolla and then 250000 Pull the other one, mate. That's Australian for we don't believe you. But sometimes the world surprises us. Here's a pic of our good mate, Bill, with his now wife, the winning ticket, and one incredible moustache. Sometimes the world surprises us with good news. Today on this Easter Sunday, guess what? We get to celebrate the greatest miracle of them all. And as we enter into this story together, we see it's got many twists and turns and unexpected surprise. It's a story about death, but also this miraculous story about new life, unexpected joy, transformation and hope for all. I know as we gather today, some of us are familiar with this story, and I hope it meets you today with great joy and encouragement for you. I also know that there's people here today, maybe just checking out church for the first time, tuning in for the first time. I pray that you would enter in with us that you would look closely, think deeply, and recognize in this moment that when it comes to the resurrection of Jesus, it's not just true news, it is good news of great joy for all people. It's good news of great joy for all people. So we're going to look at this text together, and if you do have a Bible handy, I want to encourage you to go and grab it now. And we're going to turn together to Luke chapter 24 and the reading that we heard today. If you don't have a Bible, that's totally cool. We'd love to gift you one today, by the way. But if you don't, that's fine. Feel free to cuddle up to the person next to you uh, and, and peer over their shoulder. Or we have uh, the, the words of the, the passage on the screen, which you can follow above. Three acts to navigate our time together. Act one. Guess who's coming to dinner? So we pick up the story in verse 36. And Luke, who, by the way, is a bit of a journalist, trying to put together an eyewitness account of what actually happened, Luke says, as they, which is the disciples, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace to you. I want you to imagine yourself in this very scene. I want you just to imagine, for just a moment, you're one of the disciples sitting in the room where this all took place. The atmosphere is heavy, your heart is beating fast, and you're trying to make sense of so many 
things. This time last week, you were hanging out with Jesus. You were talking with Jesus. You were laughing and sharing food and meals with Jesus. And yet suddenly you watched in disbelief and despair as Jesus was dragged away by these religious leaders and Roman guards and he was thrown to the wolves. You watched with your own eyes as they put forward these trumped-up charges and people called for his death. You followed through the crowds as they grabbed Jesus and stripped him of his clothes and then nailed him to a Roman cross. Crucifixion, they say, is the, the most horrific of all deaths, the most painful And yet here is Jesus hanging limp on a tree. The Jesus who could walk on water. The Jesus who could give sight to the blind. The Jesus who welcomed the sins of and and loved those in their sin. The Jesus who knew you in a way that no one else knew. This Jesus was on the cross. You cried out in desperation for rescue. You you prayed to God to stop the suffering. And yet there on the cross, you watched as Jesus breathed his last. And Jesus died. In the days following Jesus' death, you've you've been trying to, to deal with your own grief and the tears of your friends and you're trying to piece this all together and yet in the midst of all of this, these rumors, these rumors begin to spread. Uh, You you hear of two of your mates, uh, two of the other disciples, Mary and and, and Joe, Joanna, and uh, apparently they'd gone to the tomb uh, to uh, pay their respect and yet they've come back saying that they've seen a ghost and that the tomb is empty. And so you assume that they're fooling around. You assume that maybe they're drunk or high, or maybe drunk and high, but you don't take them seriously. And then another disciple, one of Jesus' best mates, Peter, he goes to the tomb as well, and he says, the tomb is empty. And then you hear about another two of your mates, another two disciples. These guys, let's be honest, they gave up on Jesus the moment he died. Right? They actually left Jerusalem and were going back to Emmaus, their hometown. They've given up on all this Jesus stuff, trying to find a new job now. And yet they say that along the way they have this epiphany. Apparently they're talking to some hitchhiker who turns out to be Jesus himself. And so those guys have returned back to Jerusalem. There's Mary, there's Joanna, there's Peter. And you're in the room and you're trying to piece all of this together. And Luke says, as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And what did Jesus say? Jesus says, G'day. I'm pretty sure he wasn't Australian. Peace to you, which is a greeting in the ancient 
Near East, the casual, informal greeting. But isn't it interesting? It also signals who Jesus is and what Jesus brings. Amidst your questions, amidst your doubts, as you're trying to piece it all together, he says, hey, I'm here to bring you peace. Look then to verse 37. Jesus says, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. What happens? The disciples think they're looking at a ghost and they freak out. I love this moment. I really do. Because it helps us see that the disciples are actually just a bunch of very ordinary women and men who are actually very similar to us all. This is not some super spiritual group who immediately saw what had just happened. The moment Jesus enters the room, they don't fall at their knees, worshipping Jesus as their Lord, Saviour and King. The moment Jesus is there, they don't bring out the guitar and start singing 10,000 reasons to praise the Lord. No, they think they've just seen a ghost. They do what any ordinary person would do, what all of us would do. Now, of course, the Bible is full of supernatural encounters. We read in the Scriptures stories of angels and demons and spirits appearing before people, but you need to appreciate that the resurrection is so much more. Have a look at what happens next. Thinking they'd seen a ghost, Jesus says, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands. See my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He wants his disciples to know, as he wants you to know, that they're not looking at a ghost or some divine spirit. This is so much more than a spiritual encounter. Jesus is wanting them, he's wanting you to know that he rose spiritually but he also rose physically. Jesus rose spiritually. Jesus rose physically. The same body that walked the streets of Galilee. The same body that laid hands on the man born blind and made him see. The same body that embraced Mary as she wept over her sin. The same body that was nailed to that cross and buried in the ground is the same body that now stood among his disciples and is made new. Jesus rose spiritually. Jesus rose physically. Please don't miss the significance here. So much of what you and I enjoy in our life involves our bodies. Our bodies are incredibly important. The body is how we express ourselves. The body is what gives us capacity to feel and move and embrace. Pretty much everything we experience in our life involves our physical bodies. It's actually why I think a lot of people who don't you know, go to church are puzzled and a little bit uh, puzzled and and find it difficult to to kind of grasp the, the religious story and religious people because often religious people tend to lift the spiritual life over and against the physical. 
In fact, if you look closely at, say, New Age spirituality or a lot of religious teaching today, you would think that the goal of life is to escape the body. It's almost like we treat the body like this prison, and if only I could get away from this body, if only I could escape this world. And so what happens is you might be talking about life and salvation and heaven and all of these good things, and yet what they hear you saying is that you're promising this ethereal existence where you all float spiritually on these spiritual yoga mats, wearing spiritual happy pants, singing Kumbaya for all eternity. Now, don't get me wrong, that beings, we are spiritual beings. I love to commune with God and I love my, you know, my spiritual life with Him, but I also love that God has made creation and given us bodies and a, and a world to enjoy. Um, I love that I can hug my kids. I love that I can cuddle my wife. I love that on my morning commute on my bicycle, I can feel the wind. I love to eat. I love to drink. Uh, I love hanging out with mates and seeing God's creation. I loved yesterday being out in the ocean. It was rugged. It was woolly. And true story, the moment we got into the water, the clouds broke and the sun came through. Right? And I love the sun. I love that. I love as we all walked in this morning and the the high fives and the hugs as we celebrate the good news of Jesus. Look, this is why Jesus is so powerful. Because in Jesus, we see that he is raised spiritually, but he's also raised physically. The best of all that is spiritual, the best of all that is physical, redeemed and made new. If you are in Jesus today, if you put your trust in Jesus today, this is what you and I get to look forward to. You don't look forward to a day where you escape the body and escape and, you know, no. We look forward to a redeemed world, a world made good, creation made good, Friendships, relationships, food, wine, made good. And our bodies redeemed and made good. Your desires, your mind, your heart, made new. Made new. Too good to be true? This leads to act two. Seeing is not always believing. Seeing is not always believing. I want you to cast your eyes again to verse 39 and notice that Jesus doesn't just say, see my hands and feet. He actually goes a step further. Amidst the doubts and their questions, he says, touch me and see. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see and I have. I love this moment Jesus could have dismissed their doubts, could have simply just said, believe me, but that's not what Jesus does. In an act of grace, note this, he invites them to touch and see. 
He invites them to explore the claim and consider the evidence for themselves. I remember when I was uh, 20 years of age, uh, I was working as an intern at the Australian Film Institute here in Melbourne. And my boss asks me to go to Sydney with her and the staff team to help out at the AFI Awards. I was working in the public relations area. She says, I want you to come up to Sydney. At the time, I'd never even been to Sydney before. So I'm like, yeah, I'll be there. This would be great. The big event comes, the AFI Awards in Sydney, big auditorium. I'm standing there out the front in a $15 suit that I bought from an op shop. And she says, Guy, I, I want you to stand here on the red carpet because in about 15 minutes from now, a car's going to pull up and out's going to come Nicole Kidman. I want you to greet her. I want you to welcome her. In fact, can you look after her for the whole night? Me? Well, I'm not so sure. Yes, of course I'll look after Nicole Kidman for the night. And sure enough, she turns up 15 minutes later. Out she pops. Out she pops. Out she walks. <laughs> Bing! I mean, she is stunning, Right? Beautiful, classic, and I got to walk her down the red carpet, uh, around the, uh, the, the, the auditorium, fending off the crowds. Got to walk her to her seat. We talked together. We laughed together. She even introduced me to some of her friends. Got to meet Kate Blanchett that night. Got to meet the late Heath Ledger. Got to meet Russell Crowe. After the event, I then got to go with her to this swanky Sydney club and to sit in the VIP area. I went into the Holy of Holies. (laughs) Now, could you imagine as a 20-year-old kid doing an internship, living in Box Hill, that anyone believed my... I mean, how many people do you think believed my story? We didn't have iPhones back then. I didn't get a selfie. But I did have this. That's a photo of the photo. (laughs) What is that? It's proof. (laughs) It's evidence. It really did happen. What's the point here? The point is that extraordinary claims need extraordinary evidence. You know, Jesus knows that his resurrection is extraordinary. He knows that we've never seen anything, experienced anything like that. But how cool it is that he doesn't leave you in the dark. He doesn't call you to blind faith. He says, touch and see. Explore the claims. Jesus rose spiritually, physically, but also publicly, historically. Come, touch and see. This is not hidden away. Now, there's so much evidence we could talk about today, couldn't we? We could talk about the reality of the empty tomb. No one ever found the body. We could talk about that. We could talk about the many uh, public appearances, not just these disciples, hundreds of other people, all different walks of life, many of whom gave their life to Jesus, many of whom were unlikely converts. We could also talk about the fact, couldn't we, that this historical moment led to this explosion of growth and multiplication and transform lives and churches being planted. At the death, I can tell you that was not the case. People were hiding and running in fear. After the resurrection, there is this historical moment, this move. 
And they did that. They were preaching the resurrection like I'm preaching the resurrection under intense scrutiny and pressure. Uh, They lost their lives. They were thrown to the flames. And not once did anyone come forward and say, yeah, it's all a sham. Not once did anyone save themselves. Why? It's not because it was convenient. It's because it was true. They had encountered Jesus. And Jesus changes everything. There's so much more, isn't there, that we could say about the resurrection and the evidence and the reasons to believe. And maybe you're here with a Christian here and you could ask them that question, why do you believe? What have you seen? How did you touch and see? Share that, talk about that. But I really want you to know what Jesus does to help his disciples believe. It's really unexpected. Check out verse 44. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures. This is an extraordinary moment, isn't it? Despite all that the disciples have heard, despite all that they have seen, they are still wrestling with unbelief. And perhaps some of you here today may be still wrestling with unbelief. What does Jesus do to help you in your doubt? What does he do with the disciples? He grabs one of these and leads them in a Bible study. Isn't that remarkably ordinary? Think about that. In terms of proof, we might expect Jesus at this moment to do something far more spectacular. The heavens opened. There were fireworks. 10,000 angels appeared to testify, right? That's what most of us want, if we're honest. I'd believe in God if I heard a voice from heaven. I'd believe in God if I saw three angels turn up at my doorstep. I'd believe if We put all these conditions on God. We want fireworks. We want something supernatural. But what does Jesus do to deal with our doubt? He grabs a Bible. He walks them through the Scriptures. He shows them how everything in this Word is His Word. And it's all about Jesus. Some of you will know I didn't grow up going to church. I didn't believe in God didn't pray, didn't do anything really religious. In my teenage years, pretty much just running my own life. Uh, I first saw porn when I was in grade four. I first got drunk when I was in year seven. I smoked my first bong when I was in year eight. By year nine, I was out most Friday and Saturday nights getting drunk, hooking up, doing whatever I wanted to do, and what I wanted to do was not God. Uh, my mate at school was a, a Christian. He told me I was going to hell. I didn't really care. The idea of going to church with churchy people singing love songs to Jesus, wearing a WWJD wristband, that was not my jam. 
I was having way more fun. To me, Christianity made no sense. In fact, when I finally decided to give my life to Jesus, people at school were very confused. In fact, one of my mates said, you're the last person I would imagine being a Christian. So what happened? Here's what happened. I was given a Bible. And it changed my life. My mate's sister knew I was living for myself, but she also knew I had deep questions about life. Um, my parents separated when I was young, a lot of chaos and disorder in my upbringing. And so underneath all of my partying and drinking was a quest for truth and meaning. Underneath all of my roaming was a seeking after what really matters. You would have seen a young kid plastered drunk doing stupid things, but underneath was a desire to make sense of this world. Where did this world come from? Did we just all arrive here by accident? That doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. Is there purpose for this life? Is there meaning? Why can things be so amazingly good and at the same time so amazingly bad? And, and what's at the end of all of this? Do we just live, die, and fall off a cliff into a darkless eternity? I remember uh, opening the Bible for the very first time. It's like 15, 16 years of age. Uh, it sat on my bookshelf for a bit. <laughs> but at the time, I was actually a, you know, a bit of a musician, considered myself a bit of a songwriter. I thought, you know what? Maybe there's some cool lyrics in here. Maybe there's something in here for me to read. Little did I know that opening God's book changed my life forever. You know, as I entered into the story of Jesus, it was like his presence was there with me. As I saw Jesus and his compassion, as I saw Jesus and his courage, as I saw Jesus go to the cross, live, die, and then rise, I felt as if all the desires, all the searching, all the longing, all the questions were bringing me home. It's not to say I don't still have doubts, moments of unbelief. But there's a difference, isn't there, between doubting your beliefs and believing your doubts. And in the Scriptures, Jesus has given you everything to believe. If you are here joining us online and you are exploring this faith thing, maybe you've just been dragged along, you don't even really want to be here, you're just wondering when this guy's going to shut up. Let me just sow a seed of challenge for you. This is to do something dangerous and grab a Bible and read it. Let me suggest the Gospel of Luke, which is where we are. You know, just find a comfortable spot, a nice latte, no distractions, and even be so daring to say, God, if you are real, would you meet me now in your word? We've also got a short course coming up. I think we're calling it Following, Follow Jesus. 
Um, hear a bit more about that later. Great opportunity for you to do that journey with other people, to ask your questions, to explore this Jesus. Third and final act, coming home. What is the significance of Jesus' resurrection? Again, let's be guided by what Jesus himself says. And Jesus said to his disciples, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from dead, from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. What is the significance of Easter Sunday? What is the significance of the resurrection? Why does Jesus rise from the dead? According to the lips of Jesus, he rose from the dead so that you could repent of your sins and find the forgiveness of God. Let me say that again. Jesus rose that you might repent of your sin and enjoy the forgiveness of of God. You see, the story of the Bible is not only that God made this world, but God made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. That rings true for all of us. It doesn't matter what is in your life, where you've been, whether you've been to church or you haven't been to church. We've all been, what the Bible says, fearfully, wonderfully made. Right? You're not an accident. When God created this world, He wanted you personally to exist. There's significance in your story. There is life in your lungs for a reason. What is that reason? To enjoy God's creation, to enjoy great relationships, but oh, you were made for God. He made you, note this, for Himself. I love this quote, this image from Jonathan Edwards' God is the highest good of the reasonable creature. The enjoyment of Him is our proper and is the only happiness from which our souls can be satisfied. To go to heaven fully to enjoy God is infinitely better than the most pleasant accommodations here. Better than fathers, mothers, husbands, wives, or children, or the company of any or all earthly friends. These are but shadows, but the enjoyment of God is the substance. These are but scattered beams, but God is the sun. These are but streams, but God is the fountain. These are but drops, but God is the ocean. You are made for God. And so then what is sin? We keep hearing this in church. What is sin? Sin isn't just sex, drugs, and tinder. Sin is the tendency of the human heart to seek satisfaction and significance in something other than God. It is to swim in streams but neglect the fountain. It is to see and touch the rays but never go to the sun. It is to be satisfied into the drops but never dive head first into the ocean. But this is what makes Easter so significant because in Jesus we see that God has not turned his back on us. He hasn't given up. He is pursuing you right now. And no matter how far you've run, no matter what sin you've got yourself caught in, 
Jesus says, there's forgiveness. There's reconciliation. There's hope. There's life. There's a way home. Late last year, I read this um, beautiful uh, book by Henry Nouwen uh, called The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's uh, kind of based on Jesus' parable about the prodigal son. If you're not familiar with it, it's this uh, story of a young son who uh, squanders his father's wealth on reckless living. He dishonors his father and he leaves his father and he throws himself into the world. And in this story uh, by Henry Nouwen, he he references uh, Rembrandt, the famous Dutch painter from the 17th century. In 1633, uh, Rembrandt paints a scene out of, uh, from, inspired from the life of the parable. And here, in this painting, he is depicting the extravagance of the prodigal son. This is the prodigal at the tavern. And you can see him. He's in a, he's in a brothel with a woman, and he's holding his tall glass of beer, saying, this is the life. What's fascinating about this work is that Rembrandt is depicting the prodigal, this depiction here of the prodigal, is also a self-portrait. Rembrandt chose to paint himself into the scene. And that's quite fitting when you consider his life up until this point. As a talented young painter, Rembrandt's reputation and fame grew. Uh, He marries a beautiful young woman named Saskia. She was from a very wealthy family. And he throws himself into the world of self-indulgence and self-pleasure. However, his short period of popularity and wealth is followed by much grief, misfortune, and disaster. Uh, After losing his son in 1635, he loses his first daughter in 1638, and then his second daughter in 1640. Then Rembrandt's own wife, Suskia, who he loves deeply, dies in 1642. Left with a nine-month-old to care for, Rembrandt's life falls into countless pain and misery. He marries again, has a son, only that son dies. He falls out uh, with a nurse who ends up in this lawsuit, in this legal battle. And all through this time, his popularity as an artist plummets. Uh, his financial woes deepen, and in 1656, Rembrandt is declared insolvent and hands over the rights to all of his works, his properties, and his furniture. Much like the younger son in Jesus' parable, Rembrandt crashes to the bottom. But in the last year of his life, Rembrandt picks up the paintbrush again. And he paints one of the most stunning works. Do you know what he called this work of art? The Return of the Prodigal Son. The Return of the Prodigal Son. Here the son is home. Here the son is on his knees. Here the son is embraced by a loving father. You can't help but see the artist's own longing here. Where he was once rich and confident, he's now weak and worn out. 
instead of his self-confidence and self-indulgence, is a man who is empty. And in this, I see a deep longing. I see a deep longing to come home, a deep longing to rest in the loving arms of the Father. And you'll notice as the light focuses in on the hands of the Father, we are also reminded of the hands of our Heavenly Father, the hands that made this world, holds this world, the hands that made you. And we see in Jesus these same hands, loving us, pursuing us. We see these same hands, pierced for our sins and our forgiveness. And Jesus holds out his hands to you and says, touch and see. Know my love. Know my life. And come home. Come home. Easter isn't just a religious holiday. Easter isn't just another moment on the church calendar. Easter is a time for us to come home to God. As the band comes up and we prepare to sing, I do want to give a moment for those who are tuning in online or here with us today who are wanting to respond to this invitation to come home. The Bible says, if you confess in your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. This Easter, you have heard of Jesus' life, you've heard of his death, you've heard of his resurrection, and you've also heard that we who repent, we turn from our sin, and put our trust in Jesus today, there is salvation. There is life. There is hope. There is the promise of eternity. There is God's arms waiting. You may be here as someone who is new to church. You may also be here as someone who's just always kind of been on the edges of church, coming in and out, but never truly coming home. Today you have an opportunity to say yes to Jesus and accept his life and his forgiveness. A great way to begin that journey is in prayer. So I've put together a simple prayer for us to pray, which acknowledges that we've sinned against God, that we accept Christ's death for our sin and his resurrection, and that we want to now walk in and receive his life and love. So we're going to close our eyes and pray. And I'll say each sentence of this prayer. And then we shall pause. And if this is your prayer today, then I want you to echo the words of this prayer in your head and your heart. And it will be yours. So if you'd like to say yes to Jesus today, then I invite you to pray with me. Let's all bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, 
Thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending Jesus to live, die, and rise for me. Thank you that in Jesus I am forgiven. Thank you that in Jesus I can and am at home. I turn from living for myself and put my trust in Jesus. Please send your spirit to help me follow you. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. And just as we remain in a posture of prayer, with our eyes closed and focused on the Lord, as we dwell in God's presence, I do want to pray specifically now for those who've just responded to that invitation. And so whether you prayed um, that prayer for the first time, or perhaps this was a moment of recommitment, a moment of coming home, if that's you, could you help me now and just, just raise your hand wherever you are? Father, I thank you for those here today, those joining us online. Thank you, Lord God, that the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. Thank you for the forgiveness, the grace and the life that you have given and the hope that we now have. I pray, Lord, for those who've responded to this call this morning. Thank you that they, along with people all around this world, are being changed and transformed. That out of the ashes of death, you give life. We thank you for this. And we pray for them, that they might have all they need to enjoy you and to follow you. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus and all of God's people said with one super loud voice, amen. Amen. City on a hill, why don't you stand? Um, Jesus says that when anyone returns home to the Lord, that's rejoicing in heaven. So why don't we thank the Lord for his goodness and grace today and let's lift up our voices in celebration. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.